brothers and sisters. Many, many, many. And sadly, the church thinks that it's few. The Bible is clear. Many, many false teachers. The documentary, Shiny Happy People, about the Duggar family. And you see how the teaching can have the garments and the appearance of truth, but it's contaminated with lies and will destroy churches and families. Think about those who preach the so-called prosperity theology. It's a doctrine completely empty of the cruciform life that the gospel calls us to live. People who preach this type of doctrine, they're emptying their message of the truth of God that Christ calls us to deny himself as faithful slaves, take up the cross and be willing to suffer for him. People like Joe Olsen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Paula, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, they're all empty I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1, as we are journeying through this beautiful book, the letter of Paul to Titus. And if you can, I want to invite you to stand, and we are going to read verses. We are going to get the whole context here, so let's start in verse 5 of chapter 1, as it's flowing. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and the children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. The both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. What are the pastors or the leaders of your church to be like? That's the question we have been answering as we start journeying, especially through verse 6 of Titus 1. What are the pastors supposed to be like? And nowadays it's very popular to think about leaders as coaches. So there is the coaching leadership where the pastors are supposed to be coaches. The National Society of Leadership and Success, they have an article explaining what coaching leadership is. It says, coaching leadership style is defined by the leader's ability to see the strengths and weakness of individual team members so that the leader can help each individual grow and succeed. Some characteristics of a coaching leadership style include compassion, self-awareness, collaboration, encouragement, communication. And you keep reading about this style of leadership, and it's basically the coaching leadership is the one who comes alongside just to encourage you. He's there just to make you feel better. And that has been bought by the church, and I have seen books on Christian leadership about how the pastors are supposed to be the coaching leaders in the church. More and more people are expecting their pastors to be this type of worldly leaders instead of biblical shepherds. 
You think about one of the titles given to the leaders in the church is pastor or shepherd. That's the same thing. Pastor coming from the Latin. Pastor, shepherd. And, and sometimes it's tempting for us to have this idyllic and charming idea of pastoral ministry as if it's this easy job where the pastor has this flock and all the sheep are always so happy, very docile, there is no threat. We, we, we start picturing the, the shepherd just sitting under a tree and we think about David playing the harp as if there is no harm whatsoever surrounding him. But the Bible is very clear that the metaphor of a shepherd, of a pastor, implies that there requires protection. And the protection implies what? Threat. There is always threat to the church. And as you study the life of the pastors, especially in ancient times, and even today, if you go to certain regions of the world, you know that the pastors, they have two main tools. That was a rod and a staff. They always carry with them. And the rod and the staff were not instruments for coaching people, but for protecting the flock. Doriani and Phillips, they say, in ancient times, a faithful shepherd was armed with two implements, the rod and the staff. We hear of it in Psalm 23, 4, where David says that the Lord, to the Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These items were indeed intended, respectively, for defense and guidance. When predators drew near, the shepherd wielded the rod in combat. When sheep began to stray, he used the curved staff to draw their heads back in line. Likewise, a sound elder is able both to instruct and rebuke. Pastors, elders, overseers, they have a God-given duty to protect the flock and to use the rod that Christ has given them. We often hear about the qualities that makes a, a good leader. So you get... John Maxwell, and he has all these books on leadership. And you go to a Christian bookstore and you get all the qualities that makes a good leader. And you never see there that the leader must know how to handle the rod. Have you ever seen that in a book on leadership? That a good leader is the one who knows how to yield the rod and the staff. Jesus says, and he used a metaphor for the false teachers, and he says that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. So false teachers are pictured as wild animals or even poisonous serpents. And the rod, that is God's word, is the tool that the pastors have to protect the flock. James Hamilton, he says, the shepherd's rod and staff were his implements for dis disciplining rescuing and protecting his sheep. They could be used to dis dissuade a sheep from going to a dangerous place or to break the skull of the serpent. Remember when Goliath mocks David? And he's, he says, am I a dog that you come to me with what? With sticks? The, the Hebrew word there is for rods because he's a shepherd. And that's exactly the picture of the rod was to get rid of wild dogs that would come and disturb the flock. And the spiritual pastors in the church, they also have a rod and a staff. And that is the word of God. That's the rod that we carry. The word of God. So in Titus 1, as Paul is telling the churches in Titus what the elders, the pastors are supposed to be like. And as he comes now to verses 10 through 16, he's going to show us that the pastors, they must also carry a rod with them. It's interesting, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul asks the, the church, he says, what do you want? Should I come to you with, do you remember? A rod... Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. It was John Calvin who said that 
pastors must be armed, not with material or physical swords, but with the word of God, with wisdom and virtue that they may be enabled, that they may be enabled to resist the ungodly. And that's exactly what we have here in Titus 1. It's a picture of how the elders, the pastors in the church, they must be men who are able to handle the rod in a biblical manner. And you can see, as you look at verse 10 and 4, that implies that it's following, it's flowing from the context. And we can go back to even to verse 5. The churches are disordered, and now we know why, because they're false teachers, and they must appoint, Titus must appoint elders to bring order. And one of the things that the, the orderly church is, is a church that will fight against false teachers. So, for today and next Lord's Day, here's the outline as we walk through verses 10 through 16. We are going to look at the rod to silence the false shepherds, the rod to rebuke the false shepherds, and then the rod to keep the false shepherds away. That's the outline you're going to be following. So let's journey here, starting verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. Look in your Bibles. For, what is for? Yes, so it's flowing, it's an explanation, it's a reason. So you can trace, if, you're, if you make notes in your Bible, you can trace a, a, an arrow to verse 5 and then to the verses 6 through 9. Because it's through all the way to verse 5, where 4, you need to set the churches in order and you need to appoint godly men because there are ungodly men in the church now. And look what Paul says, for there are what? A few, many, many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. How evil is our enemy, Satan, that even before faithful shepherds have been established in those churches, he has already sent wolves to those churches. Isn't that amazing? How evil he is? Even before they have faithful shepherds, Satan has already infiltrated and sent wolves to those churches. And we should never be surprised by the fact that many will attack the church. Not few, many will attack the church. Just listen to this. The words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 7. On that day, what? Many will say to me, and even claiming positions of leadership, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9? But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are what? Many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, 17, for we are not like what? So many peddlers of God's word. Philippians 3.18. For what? Many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Second Peter 2, 2. And what? Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. First John. 2.18, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard, the, the, Antichrist, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. 1 John 4.1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, many, many, many. And sadly, the church thinks that it's few. The Bible is clear. Many, many false teachers. And that's not to make us panic 
but to make us alert. Amen? That's not to make the church panic, but to make the church alert. There are many that will come. And we hold to the promise of Christ that even the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail. The church will, will triumph. We are not promised many comforts in this life, but we are promised many trials and many persecutors. And think about that. If there were many in Crete in the first century, if there were many in an island in Crete in the first century, how, how much more today? With the advent of the printing, books, radio, TV, internet. Right now in your pocket or in your purse, you have access to thousands and thousands of false teachers. They're all in your home through your phone. And for some of us, even in our books. So do not be naive thinking that many, many are the faithful ones. No, it's the opposite. Many are the ones ready to attack the church, trying to destroy the church. And if false teachers were present in churches where Paul and Peter and John planted those churches, how much more for us? We don't have those, that apostolic authority. And if Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, they all told us that there are many false teachers, who are we to believe something else and pretend that things are just getting better? So, brothers and sisters, as you look at verses 10 through 16, one thing you see is that there is a spiritual warfare going on. Before elders, before pastors have been appointed, false teachers have already been risen in the church. And Satan is working over time to hurt and destroy the church because he knows that his time is what? Short. And as you, uh, you read the false teaching here in Titus, you see how, very, how similar it is to the false teachings and the false teachers in Ephesus. So as you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, you see the similarity. And the similarity is because Satan is always attacking the truth. And you see the similarity, the false teachers always share some of the same characteristics. From the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, there was already attack on the truth of God. And that's what we see already taking place here. So we cannot be, sur we cannot be surprised. We need to be watchful. Paul says in his departure to his leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and he calls the pastors the elders and he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood that's how precious the church is bought with the blood of God himself I know that after my departure look at that Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to, do, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, what? Panic. Freak out. No, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now as you come to Titus 1, 10 through 16... Paul is going to give us, he gives us a description of false teachers and a prescription. A description, what they look like. Remember those pictures in the Old West, you have wanted. And you have a picture of the man wanted. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He has a picture of wanted and he has a picture of what these false teachers look like. You can see, you can smell them. And here's the first thing that Paul tells us about these false teachers. These false pastors. They are insubordinate. They are insubordinate. That's the same Greek word that was used in, in, in earlier for, in verse 6, for the children of the overseers, that the children cannot be insubordinate. And that means that these men here, they're insubordinate because they do not submit to the word of God. They refuse to come under the word of God. There is a refusal to submit to the word of God. 
And that's why they are insubordinate, rebellious people. There are men who reject authority. They despise authority over their lives. And you know that a man is on the path to be a false shepherd or in the path of false teaching is when he rejects biblical authority. Because biblical authority, you have the authority of the church, you have the authority of the leaders, you have authority of the parents. When a person is rejecting biblical authority, he's rejecting the Bible itself. And by rejecting the Bible, he's rejecting whom? The author of the scriptures. That's why he is a rebellious, insubordinate person. Not only that, but they are as a consequence. That's a consequence of their insubordination. They become empty talkers. That's how the ESV has. The NIV has full of meaningless talk. Or the New Living Translation has people who engage in useless talk. And that's because, brothers and sisters, you need to understand the flow here. As soon as, as soon as you come outside, you come from, you're no longer under the word of God. All your words are what? Meaningless, empty. There is no longer the heaviness of the authority of God. That's why it's meaningless talk. Because it has no longer the heaviness, the authority of God's word. That's why it's meaningless. It's like marshmallow. Do you know you put marshmallow in your mouth and just vanishes? I was going to talk about cotton candy, but I love cotton candy. And, and you know, and Sean, thank you for Sean brought me cotton candy last Sunday. It was so delightful. Thank you. But you know, you put that thing in your mouth and it vanishes, it disappears. And gives you no health benefit whatsoever. And if you're a lawyer, you're going to get diabetes and cavities. That's exactly what the picture here is. These things that it just vanishes and gives no health, no benefit. Jude, in the letter of Jude, he says that these men, there are clouds without rain. So imagine you living in an area where you need the rain. You long for the rain because of the agriculture and then you see those black clouds coming, like, yes, rain is coming. And suddenly those clouds disappear. That's the picture of these men. They, they, they promise something, but they can never give. And let us be clear that they do not come across as babblers. They do not look like empty talkers. And actually, most of these men, they're outstanding public speakers. They captivate you with their stories. They can make you cry and laugh in the matter of seconds. They're very good with their words. But their smooth talk, their eloquence, they cover up their lies and the misuse of the scriptures. So their words are empty, empty of truth. And there are so many who are full of Meaningless, empty talk. Trace here works in a Christian bookstore. And if you go to a Christian bookstore, I promise you, you're going to find many empty talkers. Go to the Amazon, look at Christian books. You're going to find many, many meaningless talk. Think about those who preach the so-called prosperity theology. It's a doctrine completely empty of the cruciform life that the gospel calls us to live. People who preach this type of doctrine, they're emptying their message of the truth of God that Christ calls us to deny himself as faithful slaves, take up the cross and be willing to suffer for him. People like Joe Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Paula, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, they're all... Empty talkers. Empty talkers are found among those who claim that you can have Jesus as your, sa as your Savior, but not as Lord. They empty the gospel of the truth that you can be saved without holiness. Without holiness, no one will see God. 
That's a lie. It's an empty talk to say that you can accept Jesus as your Savior and remain in your sins. Because he just didn't accept him as Lord. Empty talk. Others full of meaningless, empty talk because they teach the church that homosexuality is acceptable to God. They empty the gospel of the truth by denying the holiness of God. They are unwilling to submit themselves to the truth of God's standards of morality. They are also the empty talkers who claim to have all the knowledge about raising families. And they have all the keys for the perfect marriage. You just need to buy our seminar, buy our books, and you will have the perfect family and marriage. Empty talkers. They're just like the prophets of, of Baal. Remember, they're just blabbing. We call that noise pollution in the, in the ears of the Lord. There is no beauty. It's just noisy. It's a cacophony. Instead of that, we need a glorious symphony of the gospel of grace. And these false teachers in Crete, we can see, we're going to see here, especially these empty talkers, they're emptying the gospel of grace by adding works. So you need to fulfill the Old Testament law. You need to come under the Mosaic law. So they're emptying the gospel of God's power and grace. And as a consequence, they are also deceivers. That's the fruit of coming out of the truth of God. Instead of submitting themselves to the truth, they become deceivers. Instead of sons and daughters of the God of all truth, they belong to Satan, the father of all lies. Look at verse 2 in Titus 1. In hope of eternal life, which God who uh, never lies. Our God is the unlying God. And these people, they are the opposite. They show that they are not adopted by this God. They have not been born of this God because they love lies and deceiving people. So Denny Burke, he says, these teachers are thus themselves disobedient. And their teaching leads others into disobedience as well. Which is why Paul calls them deceivers. They mislead people by giving them the impression that they are following Christ, while actually they are leading people away from Him. And deception runs deep in the blood of this man. You guys have heard about ministries, churches full of deception. Full of deception. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that deception is connected with the refusal to love the truth. They refuse to love and embrace the truth of God. And let me remind you that these deceivers, these false teachers, they do not come declaring themselves to be deceivers. It's not like, hi, I'm Bobby and I'm here to deceive you. That's not how false teachers come. Hey, I'm Johnny, and I'm here to mislead you and take you to Satan. No. As we saw, they come dressed as shepherds. They, they, they pretend to be something that they're not. So Paul tells us, he warns us. Paul says, for such men, 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles. Look at that. Deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But look at that. Their end will correspond to their what? deeds. They come promising godly biblical principles. They come and they look like men who care about you. But in reality, they are ready to devour you. And now Paul, Paul is going to explain, especially in Crete, who these false teachers were. And he tells us in verse 10, towards the, the end of verse 10, he says, especially, uh, the, the Greek word would be better translated as, namely, those of the circumcision party. Literally, those of the circumcision. And why? They are the Judaizers. Do you remember the Judaizers? Those false teachers in the early church that would come to the Christians and say, hey, you need to come back to the Jewish roots. You need to become a Jew to be accepted. 
And they're called the circumcision party because you got to go back to the Abrahamic covenant where under the Abrahamic covenant, the circumcision was the sign of the covenant and then was transferred to the Mosaic covenant. So that's why they're called the circumcision. In Acts chapter 15, we have a glimpse of this man early on in the church. Remember Acts 15, we're going to deal with the first council, the first church council. And they're dealing with this type of man here. So Acts 15 verses 1 through 2 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And let me tell you, they, they, they claim to be Christians. They claim to love Christ. But they say, but you need to come under the Mosaic covenant. You need to come under Moses. Christ is good. But there's something about Moses that it's even better. Christ is good, but Moses is the one who's going to give you full acceptance before God. They did not deny Christ. It's very similar, similar to the Roman Catholic Church. They don't deny Christ. They do not deny grace. They do not agree. Uh, they, they agree with the importance of the cross. They're going to say a bunch of things that we agree. But the, there is the other thing. But your works. You need to do this. You need to do this to be accepted fully. As if Christ was not able to bring that fully adoption and acceptance before God. So we see some groups today. You have the King James only. Unless you have the King James only, you're not truly a Christian. It's true. Some people think that. Because if you don't have the King James version, you don't have the Bible. That's what some people say. You see, you're adding. So to be accepted, for you to truly hear God's word, you need to have the King James Version. Others will say the necessity of keeping the Sabbath. You need to keep the Sabbath. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, you are not fully accepted. How about this one? The necessity of being baptized in a certain church. So if you're not baptized in this church here, Hmm, I'm sorry, but you're not saved. So you see how today we have similar things. And, and that's not a first century problem. You know, to, to think, oh, the, the, the circumcision party, the Judaizers, that was something just in the first century. No. There are many people who claim to be Christians, but who they're teaching right now that you must return to the Jewish rituals. There are a lot of Christians who have no Jewish background, I, I would understand, like we have Ben here, who, who, who comes from a Jewish background, and of course, that's his roots. He's not doing that to gain favor with the Lord, just part of family. But when you get Americans who have nothing to do with a Jewish background, now telling you that you need to dress like a Jew, you need to behave like a Jew, you need to eat like a Jew, you need to celebrate the feast like a Jew, they're despising the work of Christ. And you see here, because remember, the context is important. Crete is a mess. The churches are in disorder. And now you have these men coming to church full of laws and regulations. And it might seem pleasing. It might seem attractive. Oh, finally, someone here with order. Think about that. Laws about food, what you can eat and you cannot eat. Laws about clothes, what you can and cannot wear. Laws about special days. So there was a certain appeal for those people in confusion. Besides that, they were teaching that by following these laws, you'd truly be saved. Then you had truly been accepted by God. And it's beautiful to see that though Paul wants order, he does not want an order that will contradict the gospel. So anytime a system teaches and establishes order and regulations by claiming to provide righteousness and acceptance with God by certain behaviors, Paul tells us that this type of system must be removed from the church. The greatest issue with this group of false teachers is that they're claiming that their teachings could deal with man's greatest problem. What is man's greatest problem? Sin, the heart. 
by dealing with external behavior. That's a denial of the gospel. So, look at what Paul says, verse 11. They, what? Must. That's a divine necessity. It's not an option. It's not an option. They must be silenced. It's not an option for pastors. They must be muzzled. That's the word here. The Greek word means to close the mouth, like putting something, by means of a muzzle or a gag. So the picture is you have these wild wolves in the church, and these men, they must be muzzled. There is no space. There can be no space for this man to speak. I like what Andreas Kostenberg, he says, he writes, Paul's recommended course of action here is not patient dialogue or peaceful arbitration for the sake of maintaining unity in the church. These opponents must be silenced. That is, their public teaching activity must be stopped, presumably in form of church discipline or public rebuke. Such zero tolerance is required because these individuals are ruining entire households, plunging their devotee, devotees to, into spiritual turmoil by overturning their previous convictions through persuasive argument. You see, Paul is very intolerant. Paul is very intolerant when we are dealing with people who are bringing devilish teachings into the church. And I would argue that the best way for pastors to muzzle these false teachers is by teaching the truth. I don't have the time to every meeting, every Wednesday, every Sunday, bring a false teacher and try to explain why that's wrong. My duty to help you is to unleash the truth. And you guys love the truth. And then when you see the false, you know, you can smell. That, that doesn't taste good. Shailene, how many of you know Shailene? He's a Christian rapper. He's a reformed rapper. He has a, a song called False Teachers. And he says in this song, turn off TBN. Silence them, turn off. That's, chan that's channels overrated. The pastors speak bogus statement, financially motivated. It's kind of like a Pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. How can they not be convicted? Treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you are thinking they are not danger the dangerous type because some of their statements are right? That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. Turn it off. Throw away. Stay away from this sickness. It is just like a transmittable disease. You've got to stay away. But that thing is going to contaminate. And Paul tells us how bad it is because he tells us that it's destroying, it's upsetting. Really, literally destroying whole oikos. Families, households. Uh, and I think it's to, to, important for us to think that the churches, they're not meeting in church buildings. They're meeting where in the early century? Homes. So what Paul is saying is that this teaching, they are destroying churches. And the churches are composed of what? Families. Therefore, the false teachings inside the church is contaminating the families in the church. That's what Paul is telling us. What is coming out of the pulpit, what is being preached by the leaders, will affect the church. And what you believe will affect your conduct. So false doctrines will inevitably lead to destruction. It's just like cancer, Ebola, leprosy, that will permeate and affect the whole body, the whole household. How many families have you seen destroyed by false teachers? How many families have been ruined by false teachers? 
I'm not encouraging you. I, I just, uh, Rachel and I and Abby watched that documentary, Shiny Happy People, about the Duggar family. And you see how the teaching can have the garments and the appearance of truth, but it's contaminated with lies and will destroy churches and families. And that's the contrast, because you look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers or are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination, meaning the true pastor, he takes care of his home. He takes care of his home. The false te- teachers, false pastors, they destroy the homes. That's all we see here. And then there comes verse 7. Ah, uh, uh, that's a mark of all false teachers. And they do that teaching for what? Shameful gain. They're greedy. That's a mark of false teachers. They're greedy. And that's the opposite of the faithful pastor. Look at verse 7. Or he says, he cannot be, he cannot be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So the false teachers is the complete opposite of the true teachers. A true pastor will preach and will teach sound doctrine out of love. How many years had I been in full-time jobs, sometimes working graveyard Saturday nights, being done at 6 o'clock in the morning, then coming to church to preach and not getting paid by the church? You do that out of love, out of love for the flock. To support your pastors is biblical, and I'm so thankful for this church, for the great generosity and love that you guys have towards me and my family. But pastors can never be lovers of money. And you see how prosperity theology is nothing new, right? Look at that. We could go back to Balaam. From Balaam to Judas to Creflo Dollar, there is this mark that they love money. How many, how many so-called pastors, they charge outrageous, exorbitant amount of money to preach in churches and conferences? If you knew how much some of these men charge, your jaws would drop. I know, I know some who require five-star hotels to stay, a specific brand of car to be driven around, a specific type of water bottle to drink. They only fly in first class. They are greedy people. Contrast that with the true shepherd who spends out of his pocket to travel around and minister to people. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. And a pastor or a Christian who is greedy, he's an idolatrous person because they love money over God. They think that money will provide the comfort and the joy that only God can provide. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell, they write, going where they are most needed rather than where they will be most rewarded is a decision that most must make as their ministries commence. Some will make wonderfully sacrificial choices only to discover that the need to choose will return again in each chapter of their ministry. Each time a period of service terminates or a place of ministry grows wearisome, Satan will whisper, you have already done so much. Isn't time others serve you? Whether we will be motivated by others' need rather than our own gain is a ministry decision that will not go away. When ministry is about gaining and expecting personal favors, gospel power dies. When ministry is about gaining and expecting personal favors, Gospel power dies. Service of self rather than the Savior will soon become the driving force of the labors of one who expects or demands the perks of pastoring. Should we be concerned about a fair salary and the care of our families? Of course. 
but even our families will ultimately discern if love for Christ and His people were advantage for us and our accounts is the Lord of our decisions. That's why they must be muzzled. Their teachings and their lifestyle contradict the gospel. When ministry is about gaining and expecting personal favors, gospel power what? Dies. And when the gospel power dies, people die. So, Paul tells us, they must be what? Silence. They must be muzzled. Because their teachings are muffling the true gospel. Perverting the true gospel. The rod of God's word must be used to remove the voice of these false shepherds. There is no place for tolerance when you're dealing with false teachings. There is no, ah, it's only a difference of opinion. We will all go to heaven. That's not what the Lord tells us. They must be silenced. Just like Jesus. Remember in the gospel, as Jesus is speaking to the demons, he says, quiet, be muzzled. Or he's talking to the storm, shh, be muzzled. That's how pastors are supposed to do with false shepherds. We have an holy obligation to silence the blabbing, silence the noise of false teachers by preaching the sound doctrine. I remember a retreat, a church retreat. It's always dangerous. Different churches, different denominations. I'm a, I have my concerns about that. So we're having this retreat, different churches. One man is there to speak. And as he's speaking, he starts speaking very unbiblical things, very unhealthy things. And one of the pastors in charge, he literally came, told the man in the sound booth to turn off the man's mic. He came to the front, gently, kindly, he put his arms around the man, just whispered him, time for you to sit down. He got his mic and started explaining the truth of God. And that's what needs to be done. The mic must be turned off, must be muzzled, and the truth must be proclaimed. We must muzzle them, silence them. You guys know, not long ago, we had a man coming to this church. Strange doctrines, especially the women, trying to be very nice with the women. Must be muzzled. Silence. That's not your place here. There is no freedom of speech in the church. We love freedom of speech in America. There is no freedom of speech in the church. All our speech must be under the authority of this thing here, the Bible. All our speech must be enslaved to sound doctrine. And when we are preaching what is not sound, not in accordance with sound doctrine, it must be muzzled. And the best way, I will repeat, the best way for pastors to muzzle and silence these false teachers is through the sound doctrine, unleashing God's truth verse by verse, and then verifying that truth by a lifestyle of godly living, blameless. We can be tempted to think that's harsh, right? How harsh of Paul to tell that we must gag and muzzle these people. That's so unkind to rebuke. But when we understand that our only hope is the true gospel, that the only salvation can come through the truth of God, then you understand how loving it is to muzzle these people. The cacophony must be gagged. The blabbing of false teaching must be muzzled so people may be able to hear the symphony of grace. Empty words, empty words telling Christians that they must accept gay marriage. Empty words telling Christians that the gospel is all about social justice, critical race theory. Empty words saying that we must accept LGBTQ+. Voices telling Christians that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. Empty, empty words teaching 
that Christ wants you to be full of health and wealth and no suffering. All these voices must be what? Silence, muzzled. People need to hear the gospel of the cross. They need to hear the sound of grace. And that's what Paul is going to play. Look with me to chapter 2. Here's the sound of grace. Look at verse 11. That's what people need to hear. That's the symphony of grace. The amazing grace that people need to hear. The cacophony must be muzzled. For the grace of God, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This grace is Jesus, not the works of the law. Bringing salvation for all people. And once this grace takes over us, Jesus takes over us, indwells us with His Holy Spirit, then He empowers us to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession." We're zealous for good works. As soon as we start adding works, the music of grace is turning to a cacophony of disgrace. And it's when they are silenced, it's when you stop listening to these empty words that you are able to listen to the beautiful hymn of grace, the gospel of the cross, and it's when people stop listening to these half-truths, these lies, and they start listening to the good news, the beautiful news, that they are truly able to find true freedom, true riches, true comfort, true joy in Christ Jesus. That's why the cacophony must be muzzled, so people can hear the glorious gospel of Christ. Amen. May the Lord help us. Father, we, we thank you for your word. How we need you, Lord. How we need you to protect us, to guard us. How easy it is to fall into these traps, Lord. How silly and naive of us would be to think that we could never come to such a place of embracing false teachings, Lord. Help us to be watchful. May Christ be always, always guiding us into His truth. Help the elders of this church to be faithful to You, Lord. Guard us. Help us to be men who are under the authority of God's Word. Because that's the only authority that we have, is to be under Your Word. Thank you for a church that loves the truth. And I pray that you continue creating us a hunger for the truth of God alone. Because we know that only your truth can truly set us free. It's your truth that can provide all that we long and desire. So help us. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Amen.